0: Good morning. It is nice to be together this morning, especially with our dear friend Karen. That was awesome. Thank you. Okay, we are going to spend time in God's Word today. And I also want to just point out the obvious kind of warm in here. It's not because it's warm outside, it's because the boiler's working. Uh, didn't really need it today, but that 's cool so it 's on uh, and hopefully it 'll continue to work as it gets colder and as I continue to wear jeans to preach so good morning, Church of the valley. Today we continue our series titled what i mean it 's right there done as we walk through the letter to the early church known as first John as we just read, as Karen just read, you heard a short passage that has an application that seems, if you think about it, incredibly impossible. Because based on what we know about the scriptures that speak about Jesus, he was and is and will always be perfect. Yet the perfect one ended up on a sinner's cross as an atonement for sin, as a payment for sin. And you and I, while given what is known as grace a gift in which we do not deserve in the person and work of Jesus, have a bit of a responsibility that I don't actually think we're up for or able to do. And the good news, as the series name suggests, is that the work that is required of any of us has already been done. Let's make it simple, and I'll take us back to a point that we used to share a lot, but I think it means just as much today as it did a few years ago, and each of us will stand before God one day and be judged for what we have done, and every single one of us, this is bad news, is guilty of sin, and yet we who have believed in God's only Son have a mediator. We have a savior and a defender that is more than just someone who stands in the gap, he is our ultimate defense for our salvation. When asked what makes me righteous, when asked what makes me deserving of heaven, what makes me a citizen of the kingdom of God, here it is, I only have one thing I can and will say. I'm with Jesus. That's it. That's what I got. That's my defense. He is my defender, he is my case, and I rest everything upon him. Not my works, but his works. Not my merit, but his merit. Not my resume, but his perfect resume. And I'm with Jesus, and he is my defense, and it's not because I or you, if you're with Jesus, have cracked some code, or you were lucky, or you were good, it's because God is good. Amen? And in his grace... If you have believed unto his son, you know that being with Jesus, identifying with him, him getting what you deserve, and you getting what he deserves, is the craziest deal in all of human history. And we don't, nor should we, attempt to ever justify ourselves or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have one reply when we ask, when we are asked, what makes you good with God, it's because I'm with Jesus. And if you also by faith have received God's grace, you too can simply say, I'm with Jesus. But if you are anything like me, you forget this tenet of the Christian faith. It's not about what you do. It's about whose you are. And while I believe I'm a follower of Jesus and I identify and am identified by Jesus's perfect work on the cross and resurrection from the dead, my life is given over to Jesus. I still functionally act as if I need to earn or pay back Jesus for his gift of grace. And I am probably not the only one who does this, And while we might not consider this a big deal that we unfortunately do this, we say this very often at Church of the Valley, our motivation matters. And so what I believe the text today is going to teach and remind us is simply that our faith is not dependent on our ability to earn or our merit or our goodness, but is dependent upon a Messiah. So with that in mind, please, please... Take this into account as we study and read this passage, because if you don't, it'll seem like an insurmountable situation, and you'll miss the essence of what John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was communicating to those who were considered part of the church of the living God. So here we go, verse 1. My dear children, John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John speaks to those in God's church as dear children. This is an affectionate term, and and in this affection, and because of this affection, John doesn't want his readers to sin. He doesn't want anyone to sin, not because of some holier-than-thou perspective, but because he knows that sin is what excludes us from peace with God. It breaks our fellowship with both God and his people. Sin slows down our sanctification and is effectively making us blind to God's goodness as we walk around in the darkness. So John speaks to two pieces of the gospel, the good news of Christ, that go hand in hand, but cessationists of the day, arguers of the day, bad Yelp reviewers of the day attempted to separate these. Here, here's what they are. We, creation, mankind, we're sinful, and yet God is gracious. We're sinful, and yet God is gracious. And it is in that grace that our sin is paid for, which should not lead us to license, but should lead us to worship and adoration and trust and obedience and life change, all because of the person and work of the payment of, the, of our sin, which is God himself, Jesus Christ, God taking on skin, our advocate, our mediator, our righteousness. Righteousness just means right standing before God. So listen, church. You sin. Anyone want to argue? Maybe not right now, but maybe as you guys leave. (laughs) I sin, and we should not wink at our sin. We shouldn't care less about our sin. We should grieve over our inability to make Christ central in our lives. But when we sin, hear me, please, it doesn't mean we need to continue to sin so grace may increase, nor does it mean we ought to live in guilt and shame because we have sinned. When we sin, which often I think we attempt to remind you that this is not placing, or uh, sin is when we don't place our identity in Jesus, but when we fail to do this, we ought to stop looking at ourselves and our shortcomings and look to Jesus and his perfection and worship him because he gave us what we did not deserve in his perfect record, which supersedes our lives before the Father. So I hope everyone is listening, truly. I hope you're awake enough to grasp what this verse is saying. You and I sin, and as long as we don't try to self-justify As long as we don't attempt to defend ourselves, as long as we can own up to the fact that we make mistakes and transgress and we sin, we have a defense far better than any excuse you or I can make for our sin because Jesus is better than our excuses. Jesus is our righteousness and perfection. So are you still attempting to justify yourself? I don't know. I'm not going to like call you out and be like, hey, Mark, are you still trying to justify? I don't know. I'm not spending all my time with you. I know that personally there are times where I go, I know I'm saved by grace, but I'm better because I do this. I know I do this. So are you still attempting to justify yourself? Are you trying to defend yourself rather than pointing to Jesus and allowing him to be your defense? How good is God to give us the way out from what sin actually affords us? But as we will study in the next verse, rejection rather than acceptance of God's grace is what excludes any person from fellowship with God. Here's what it says. Verse 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Wow. He being Jesus, John says, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atonement is a word we probably don't use that often, right? Like it's not apple atonement, right? It's apple pay, and atonement means payment. And another word for atonement is propitiation. Probably another word we don't really use or think about that much. But it is this atonement. It is this propitiation. It is this payment for our sins, not by our effort, not by our merit, not by our luck, but through God himself sacrificing himself for us that any of us have access to God in fellowship. So where does the payment for our sins come from? Our life or someone else's? You guessed it. There is a payment, there is a payment of life, and we believe that Jesus paid the debt himself. He paid the debt for our sins. But John makes a point that it was not just for those who do believe, but for the whole world. What? So let's begin with what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that everyone who has ever lived has been forgiven of their sins, as some want it to mean or as I hear at every funeral I've ever been to. This is not about salvation being given to the whole world because the whole world has not received God's grace by faith. No, the whole world, in quotes, shows the power and the magnitude of the cross. The whole world's sins are not too much for the grace of God. Wow! Because I know the stuff I think. And in the cross of Christ to forgive, we can find acceptance from God, yet most reject grace, because they won't accept that they are in need. They won't accept that God is real, and they, and that He can and should overrule everyone because He is love, knows all, and is ultimately redemption for those who would trust Him. But for some, they'd prefer to perverse His character and underplay His justice. See, here's the thing. And I'm saying this as a sinner. Sin is awful, but the cross is bigger. But for those who through faith want to receive grace, they can understand that there is no sin that can separate them from God because God's grace is bigger. But here's the encouraging thing about what John points out. Jesus' sacrifice, big enough, strong enough, and doggone it, great enough to be an offer of forgiveness for the sins of any and everyone. And there is the struggle many of us have. Here's what we think. Grace is good. But that person, whomever that is, that person doesn't deserve to be saved. And that's just it. No one deserves to be saved. Literally, no one other than Jesus has not committed cosmic treason against a God with their actions and their thoughts and their words. So for 2,000 years, people have struggled with grace. They have either downplayed it and ran towards this idea of works-based salvation, or they have ran towards liberty and said that it doesn't matter what they do because grace is all that matters. And when it comes to salvation, the rub or the tension has always been, am I saved by what I do? Nope. You are saved by whose you are, but whose I am? means what I do changes. What I do, my lifestyle, my priorities, they change. Sometimes dramatically and sometimes gradually. But life change is a marker of God intervening. And not only does uh, not only does what we do change, but care for what God says changes. It becomes more important in our lives. It becomes not a suggestion. Oh, that's a good commandment, I like that one. Maybe I'll do it on Tuesdays at 3 a.m. No! But God's commandments become truth to us. His commands become a loving message to us to remind us that He cares for us as His children rather than an oppressive order. Aaron was putting up Halloween decorations because, you know, it's September. And she was putting up Halloween decorations in front of her house yesterday, and she took Finley out there, and Finley kept going towards the street. And we live on a somewhat busy thoroughfare. And she was just kind of inching. She was kind of doing this, like the the Mick Jagger. And as she got closer to the street, I was like, Finley, stop, get back over here. Now, did I do that because I want to ruin her fun? No, I did that because I don't want her to get dead. I'm a big fan of Finley. I want her to live and get old. I really do. And so when I commanded her not to get into the street it's not because I don't love her. Literally it's because I love her. So when we understand grace, we understand that his commands are not oppressive, they're for life. So John puts it this way. Verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now, let me let me I don't want to add to the Bible, but I want to add to the motivation. Keeping and caring work together. If you look at, well, this person does these things, so obviously they're a good moral person. Obviously they're probably a Christian. Obviously they're probably going to heaven. I don't know why I'm using that accent. But perhaps they have missed what we say every week almost. Motivation matters. It's not just what you do. As we have talked about many times, the elder brother in the parable of the lost sons kept all the commandments, if you will, according to him, at least in his own mind, yet he did everything he did so the father would owe him a goat. But let's look at what the rich young ruler, who was also very similar, experienced and said. Here's what it says in Mark 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, God with skin, Jesus, God's only son, Jesus, God, says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, you shall not, or you shall, (laughs) honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Don't miss that. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. The rich young ruler calls Jesus good, and Jesus says, no one is good but God, and then the rich young ruler essentially goes, me too, I'm good. The rich young ruler, as he was called by many commentators, claimed he kept all of the commands. But did he? Probably not as perfectly as he claims or thinks he did. But Jesus, knowing his heart, Mark writes, Jesus looked at him and loved him and told him the one thing he lacked. Now, let's be fair. He lacked a lot more than just this one thing. But Jesus knows exactly what is standing between him and trusting God with his eternity truly. It was his finances and his security. So when we keep the commands, church, do not do it out of duty or become prideful because perhaps maybe you've obeyed something. Remember that the commands are for, are good, and we get to partner with God in our sanctification, in our spiritual growth, our becoming more like Christ when we put into practice what he says for the right reasons. Verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Again, here lies the rub, the tension. Many claim they identify with Christ, they claim to be a Christian, they say they too are part of the body of Christ, but what difference has God's grace made in their lives? Not much because their actions do not look any different than they did prior to their supposed meeting with Christ. So I'm gonna use an analogy I like to use. I think it's a fun analogy. Most of you have heard it, some of you haven't, but it clicks, all right? So imagine I'm late. And all of a sudden it's like 10 o'clock and you guys are all sitting here and for some reason no one's like, you know, gone up here and told jokes just to prepare everybody. But I run through the doors and I come in and I look exactly like this and I go, Church, I am so sorry I'm late. I was on Pruneridge and I was coming here and, and uh, uh, something fell out of my vehicle and I got out of the car to grab it and as I went down to grab it, I got hit by a Mack truck. I like Peterbilt. I got hit by a Peterbilt truck, semi-truck, big truck, okay? And I look just like this. And I use that as an excuse. And I say, I'm so sorry I'm late, I got hit. But nothing in me has changed. Nothing, according to the way I currently look, actually has any evidence of being hit by a Mack truck. I don't have any scars, there's no blood, there's no oil, nothing has happened to me. But my excuse is... The reason I was late was because I got hit by a semi-truck. It's not believable if I look exactly the same. It's not possible to get hit by a semi-truck and not have any evidence of it. Just like it isn't believable or possible to come into contact with the master of the universe and not be changed by him. So let me use one of my favorite spiritual puns. I'm pulling out all the greatest hits today. I haven't broken it out in over a year, but here it is. When you spend time outside in the sun, people can tell. They'll say things like, oh, did you get some sun? Oh, are you getting a tan? (laughs) I don't know why I sound like a 45-year-old white woman. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Oh, you should probably have used more sunscreen. So when you spend time in the sun, people can tell. And when you spend time with the sun, S-O-N, people can tell. So our following Jesus is not based on how good we are or the good things that we do, but the good things that do come out of someone who has been saved by grace and they understand it. Listen, we are not saved by works. We say this, all the time. We don't want any one of you to believe that you are justified. Big word means you're made right, means you're made good. We don't want anyone to think they're good because of how good a person they are. You're beautiful. Listen, you are beautiful, you are wonderfully made, you are important to God, but you, like me, we're not good. According to the text, only God is good. So if you want to be proud of a work, Be proud of the fact that Jesus did what you were unable to do, not by just doing anything wrong, but as Ruth reminded us last week, by doing everything Jesus ought to do as well. And I'm so proud to identify with him, to identify with his finished work I am sorry that my ability to sin created the need for a Savior to have to die in my place, but he did, and I look to him, not my own abilities or merit or for my right standing with God, and we'll say it over and over again in as many different ways as we possibly can until Jesus comes back or until I'm in eternity with him. There is no more important message. It's not about what you do. It's about whose you are. And Jesus did for you what you were unable and unwilling to do, which was be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So John says that they who say they know him but refuse his commands, they don't know him. He goes even a step further. He's like, liar. So while I don't think our takeaway should be every time you see someone spending time uh, outside of the will of God who claims that they're a Christian, we should be like, liar, don't do that. I do think that those who say yes to Jesus but live however they want and refuse, ignore, and disobey what God says in the scriptures are at the very least significantly less mature in their faith than maybe they believe about themselves. We should be equipped with knowing that just because someone says that they are something doesn't mean they actually are. Crazy, I know. But again, As we talk about a lot, we are not saved by works, but our works, they're something. Let me show you this in just a moment, this brief clip from a movie called The American Gospel. We showed this video in the chapel many years ago, and there's this pastor in New Hampshire named Nate Pickowitz. He breaks it down. He breaks it down pretty plainly regarding our works, and there's even pictures, so watch.
1: The question is, well, how do we know if faith is real if there's no works? Doesn't the Bible say faith without works is dead? And so don't we have to do works to be saved? Isn't that the argument? Is that what we have to be doing? But there's two understandings of that, and one's biblical, one's not. So the Roman Catholic view of salvation, and really any works-based system of salvation, takes works and puts it at the root and says that works plus your faith in Jesus is what produces salvation. But the Bible teaches that it's not the root, it's actually the fruit. That your faith alone in Jesus, that is what saves and then a a life that has been saved, a sanctified, regenerated heart produces fruit, the fruit of good works. And so you know a person's been saved because of their fruit, but the fruit is not the reason they're saved. They're saved by God by grace, through faith in Christ. So
0: works, they happen. But for a true believer, they don't happen to justify oneself as the root, as Nate said. They are simply the fruit of believing and knowing and seeing the difference between these two things really means a lot. So let me say it this way. Are we saved by, here's the question, are we saved by works? Answer, only Jesus' work on the cross. That is the only work that any of us are saved by. Now, as we conclude this passage, as we will study today, let me take you back to where we started, where I said, I'm with Jesus. It is really easy to attempt to justify ourselves. And when the grace of God hijacks our eternity and our affection is stirred for Jesus Christ, we then realize that attempting to justify ourselves, no matter how good we think we are, is trying to long jump the widest portion of the Grand Canyon. It's not going to happen. But we will read in a moment something that too seems impossible, but get your eyes off of yourself and your abilities and look to the one who is our defense. So let's read. Here's what it says. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Okay, well, if anyone obeys, he says, kind of seems like a low bar, right? But I think it has more to do with actually doing it for the right reasons, you know? If your obedience is to get something out of God, and let's be real, we've all done this. If your obedience is to get something out of God, that does not complete anything, You're just treating God like a transactional relationship. But when we obey out of love, hear me, when we obey Christ out of love, we understand that God loved us before we obeyed in the first place. And knowing God means we know that he is good and we know that he is due worship and obedience and trust and he's worthy of our following because he knows how to use us for his glory which means he produces fruit in us. But again, our being in him means we are with him. He is our defense, he is our lord. Those who are in him are those who let me use a word we've used before, abide. And abiding is our being in Christ. It is our salvation on display. It is where our justification and our sanctification run parallel together. We know we are saved through Jesus' work and God transforms us gradually as we remain in the truth. And how do we know we are remaining or the word is ultimately abiding in that truth of Jesus? We grow. Fruit is produced. So let's see how Jesus says it to his disciples in John 15. He says, starting in verse 5, I, Jesus, am the vine, you, church, my people, disciples, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 8, but this is, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Don't read that like a legalist. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep the commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be complete. So hear me. You hear abide. And you kind of tense up. Abiding is not trying. Abiding is remaining. Abiding is staying connected. Abiding is being a part of God and his work. And for most of us, we replace abiding or uh, read instead trying really, really hard. But Jesus is using this analogy about the vine and the branches and is giving us a pretty great illustration of how fruit is actually produced or what our obedience done for the right reasons actually does, which is fruit. And I've been part of communities where people attempted really hard to judge everyone based on their fruit. The problem with fruit is it is not produced quickly, nor is it from trying really hard in religious activity. So, I have an illustration. I have a branch. Now, let's pretend that it's from an apple tree. It's not. It was right outside my office. I just, you know, snapped it. It was already dead. It's fine. No, no, tr- no, alive trees were harmed in the middle of this illustration. Okay, so let's pretend this is from an apple tree. Now as we pretend that this is from an apple tree, with every person in this room, if I invited all of you to come up here and gather around and lay hands on it and pray as hard as you could, do you think it would produce an apple? No. I mean, do you think we could get any fruit? I mean, I guess we could tape an apple to it. Well, look, right? I've been to churches that essentially do that. Maybe all of us are really good doing stuff in the garden. I know Mike is, and maybe we bring all the stuff we need, and collectively we come together with all our talents and with all our gifts, and we're all present in this room. And do you think if we brought shovels and dirt, we could make this produce fruit? No. Why not? What if we really want it to? We really are willing to put in a ton of effort. Why won't it produce fruit? Okay, because it's cut off from the tree. Oh, is that what Jesus means when he says we're not abiding in him? When we're not living by faith in the truth of his resurrection and in his perfect work on the cross? When we attempt to justify ourselves and when we attempt to just be busy for Jesus? I'll admit I've done this. We, like this tree branch, are not connected to the vine, and we will not bear any fruit. So don't try to bear fruit by trying really hard, church. Uh, fruit! Nope. can <laughs> just look a little constipated, to be honest. <laughs> Abide. Remain. Be connected to Jesus through His Word. Let me make it practical. Read His Word. And don't ignore what he commands you to do. Pray, but don't use prayer as a magic eight ball attempting to get what you want from him. Should I move? It is not for sure. Okay, the Lord's telling me to move, right? Like that's what we do. Pray, commune, invest in your relationship with Jesus. And according to John 15, I love the promises of God. Fruit will be produced. Not by you. Not by your effort, not by your say-so, but as a byproduct of loving, remaining, obeying, and trusting Jesus each day. So Warren Wiersbe, he's a theologian, he wrote a book about abiding. Here's what he said, it made sense to me. God works in and we work out. As we surrender, God works in. As we obey, God works out. Abiding involves keeping in fellowship with the vine so that God can work in us. When you spend time in the sun, people can tell. When you spend time with the sun, people can tell. That working in us is the fruit he produces in his disciples. And what is that fruit? Man, I mean, it's pretty numerous, but I love when the Bible actually tells you specifically what, what the fruit is. It means you're going to look more like Jesus. Now, not long beard and sandals. I mean... The fruit produced in any of us is both obvious and it's subtle. It's growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what it is, according to Paul. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So don't try to microwave your life change, church. It won't be as quick as you'd like Be faithful to abide. Some people in this room just need to be reminded of that. Maybe you have been faithful. Maybe you have been, but you're not growing at the speed that you want to. Okay, keep being faithful because that is a work of God. (sighs) Be faithful to abide in the vine. Stop trying so hard to be gooder. I don't think that's a real word. I think that's sunglasses. But don't try to be gooder. Gooder doesn't matter. Christ-like by being in Christ, that is what living like Christ lived means. Be in Christ. Not trying really hard, but like him, abiding in God. So let me read that verse, those two verses one last time and we'll be done. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Worship team, come on up. So what do we do? Well, Christians, those of you who have trusted Christ, who have said, yes, I identify with Jesus' finished work, it is to have confidence in your salvation. It is to have confidence in your Savior. It is to not justify doing good things to out-equal the bad things that you have done. Do not justify yourself in order to attempt to pay Christ back for what he has already done. Abide, remain in, focus on, trust the process of Jesus daily revealing more of himself in the scriptures, and be quick to find new ways and ways that you've put off to apply what he says. And for those of us who are yet to bow a knee, for those of us who are yet to say, God, I will stop trying to do it myself. I will, I want you to overrule me. Stop thinking you can do enough to make up for your sin nature. That's exhausting. I recommend, I implore, I advise that each of us would believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ and trust that He is God, that we are not and we can have full confidence in His grace received by faith, because the gospel is not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. The gospel is about Jesus, because Jesus is the gospel personified. And I pray that one day each of us would simply understand that when we stand before God, what we point to is not our merit, not our works, but we say, I'm with Jesus. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, I, uh, it's such a simple message and yet a message that I still think I'm trying to learn. And I'm not necessarily holier than anyone in this room, but I know that I'm level at the foot of the cross because of the grace that you lavished upon us through your death and resurrection. And by faith, I trust you. And so, God, if I'm still wrestling with grace, if I'm still trying to pay you back, I assume there's many in this room that are doing the same. So, God, I pray even as we sing these two songs, that you'd stir an affection in us. You'd stir a want in us. You'd stir an understanding that when you command something, it's not because you want to ruin our day. It's because you want us to live life and life to the fullest in Christ. So God, thank you that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not by what we do, but thank you that the fruit that's produced in us is a reminder of how good you are to use your people for your glory. God, may we be used for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.